Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, Fortress on the Hill listeners, we are back. Took a very short break. We've had some uh, incredible guests, as as you all have noted, uh, throughout the pandemic, maybe because people are home and and doing a lot of Zoom. uh, Throughout all the tragedy, we've had some incredible guests to weigh in on what have been pretty profound times. And uh, we're not disappointing today. In fact, Uh, with the new Eisenhower Media Network that we've been talking about uh, on the pod, starting with Ben Cohen a couple of months ago on his sailboat on Lake Champlain. If anyone was able to hear him, more power to you. I promise Henry did his best. But uh, it it lent authenticity to the Ben Cohen experience. But, you know, starting with that, we've been talking a little bit about EMN, uh, which I'll be directing and what it's going to be about. And one of the things we're going to be doing in sort of an informal series is having some of the frankly incredible array of senior fellows that have signed on uh, the initial 12 that we're going to launch with, which we're just about done solidifying. Uh, we call them the 12 apostles of anti-militarism, perhaps. But uh, the first guest who has not been on the pod, you know, we've had uh, Larry Wilkerson on before. And, uh, and of course, he'll be one of the lead members. But uh, uh, today we have uh, Special Agent Retired Colleen Rowley, who I had the absolute pleasure to uh, appear with in Iowa. Uh, I don't even remember. Colleen, when was that? When were we in Iowa? That was forever ago. It was before the pandemic. Yeah, it was Veterans Day um, or Armistice Day uh, last year. That's right. right. And- and it also uh, actually coincided with the coldest. Uh, they, we set records for cold. It was freezing below zero uh, wind chills on Veterans Day uh, last year in Iowa City. That's right. It was my first time in Iowa City. Uh, I, I totally enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a great city. It was freezing. And, uh, and I remember, you know, just having a great event. And uh, for those of you who don't already know, uh, you know, Colleen is a retired FBI special agent, uh, former Minneapolis Division Legal Counsel. She uh, taught constitutional law and law enforcement ethics to FBI agents, to other law enforcement officials. Uh, she then became a whistleblower about the FBI's pre-9-11 failures, testifying to the Joint Intelligence Committee inquiry, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the Inspector General Staff of the Department of Justice. And uh, much of this was uh, in the wake of 9-11, as well as uh, sort of around the Iraq War. And in 2003, or 2002, she was named, along with two other corporate whistleblowers, as Time Magazine's 2002 Persons of the Year, which is uh, obviously a pretty incredible honor. Uh, In early March 2003, a fateful month, obviously, with the Iraq invasion, 
she warned FBI Director Robert Mueller, uh, who has, of course, jumped right back into the spotlight uh, surrounding the Trump impeachment. Uh, she warned him of further problems, including uh, going along with the Bush administration's now utterly proven, obvious at the time, uh, so many of us missed it, the deceptive plan to launch you know, that war, which uh, would become probably the most counterproductive war uh, in modern American history, uh, a country that had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Uh, Colleen is, you know, has scholarship and degrees and, and all the bona fides that anyone could want. She has a, a bachelor's in French, has done some uh, tours uh, in France as part of her professional career, uh, as well as a law degree at the University of Iowa. And her work, her writing, in addition to the speaking and appearances, uh, hasn't has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Guardian, and CNN.com. And we at EMN are super happy to have her as a senior fellow. Um, I'm just, you know, completely honored that I've gotten to appear with her once. I have a feeling we're going to do a lot more of it, Colleen. And, you know, here on the pod, we're glad to finally have you on. So just thanks so much for appearing. Well, I'm really honored that you invited me along with these other uh, really so credible voices. Uh, I know Larry Wilkerson pretty well, and I, I know a couple of the others as well. And um, I'm just ever in awe of you for having the energy and, and multitasking all the time with all the things you're putting out. Uh, I just I wish we could clone you and uh, and Larry Wilkerson and some others and and amplify it so that we could make more of a dent um, in the in the public opinion, because obviously we are up against one big uh, what do you call it information war machine the type of thing that Eisenhower actually warned about. And it's, it's so, it is frustrating because it's so darn hard uh, to, to have an impact. And, and yet at the same time, um, I'm inspired that finally there are more, you know, there are voices like yourself, um, kind of like, you know, the whistleblower phenomenon that we're seeing. We're seeing, even though they're prosecuting Assange and, and, uh, and of course, prosecuted Manning and put people in jail. They're trying to stop this, desperately trying to stop people from telling the truth. But it's inspiring that there are more people, actually, that are, are still telling the truth about things. And I, it's, you know, I, I'm kind of in the middle now because I've, I've kind of been very frustrated in the past 20 years. You know, it's, it's been a frustrating thing uh, to see as Cassandra, you know, that old myth, Cassandra, to warn about something. And I literally, if I started counting, I think there's at least a dozen things that I was a ahead of the curve. And I warned, you know, this is wrong. This is bad. It's going to backfire. And then you're, you're doomed. Nobody really listens or cares or doesn't understand or, or the war machine just continues to plow on. And, and then you, you're doomed to see the worst happen. You know, a year, two years later, the exact same thing that you warned about happens. And I can't tell you how fr how frustrating that is. I mean, it's the saddest thing in the world, and especially when you do have children and grandchildren who have to face the music for the next long, you know, the, the next long term here. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating at the very least, but I'm, I'm willing to try to jump in and, and do what I can about some of these issues. Well, what you said is, it's so powerful and it's daunting. There are certainly 
dark times in this, you know, vague broad tent movement uh, that we're kind of all a bit of a part of it, it's, it comes in such fits and starts and it's, you know, the progression is not as linear as the history books tell us. And what you said about children and grandchildren today is AJ, Alexander, James, Michael, my first son, he's 12 today. Uh, and, uh, and he's doing school as I record this online which is already a bizarre COVID situation. And uh, he's named after, you know, three of my soldiers who were killed in Iraq. Is, uh, that's how we named him. And uh, we watched uh, Oliver Stone's platoon together about uh, two months ago when I was starting to do some of these projects with Oliver. And, uh, you know, I think what was striking me was that the movie did affect him. He was finally kind of old enough to get some of it. And we were talking about Elias and the different characters. And it struck me that, uh, you know, that was now 55-ish years ago that, you know, that movie takes place. And uh, and I'm still having to sort of show this to my son uh, and it's sort of unabated. So it's a difficult uh, journey, but what else are we going to do, right? And and so I'm just so thankful that after everything you've been through and, and how long you've been fighting this, that you're willing to contribute, which kind of leads me to my first question. You know, I'm sure that you get it so many times. I know that the question that I usually get on like every first appearance on a podcast or radio or whatever is always the same. And it's basically some vague version of Danny, how did you become you, you know, like, why did, why did you become this anti-war sort of uh, progressive style activist when you were like good on paper? But I think the reason I particularly want to ask you to give us your general journey is because some listeners might not know, but also something that you had said in your intro just then, which is that, you predicted at least, you know, half a dozen things that came true. And one of the things that strikes me that that makes me admire people like you and a few others is that when I read about 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, I'm blown away by how obvious in some ways a lot of these lies and deceits ought to have been. Uh, and yet how many, including myself to a large degree, were completely hook, line, and sinker. You know, we didn't know any better. We, we should, you know, but in a way, it feels like the good Germans later saying, oh, we didn't know about these crimes. And so I was hoping that you could kind of tell the, you know, the listeners just a little bit of your story at whatever length you're willing, because uh, I, I think it's incredibly important that we remember that pivotal 2001 to three moment and what we should have seen. Well, someone just recently asked me about, you know, the so-called uh, quote unquote courage and I, I think that's that word, that term is actually kind of a, you know, it's kind of a vague thing. It can mean a lot of things. And it's all also misleading. I, I taught uh, law enforcement ethics and, in fact, even had a couple of slides, which were the things that prompted me after 9-11 uh, to say, you know, this is this completely goes against what we were teaching in law enforcement ethics, which is never to to puff or aggrandize or shade or skew the truth, uh, not to ever shade the facts in a, in a law in a prosecution, uh, because you want to convict somebody. You know the ends justify the means. You know this was a huge part of law enforcement law enforcement ethics. And then after 9/11, that just went up in smoke. And there were other things too that your highest loyalty is to the Constitution, not to your agency, whatever. So um, I think that critical thinking is a better term than courage. And, you know, some people, uh, maybe, maybe there's a little bit of a hardwiredness for this, because even as a little kid, 
I was challenging. I, I remember the first time I challenged a teacher was in third grade. And it was because she completely messed up the science lesson and was telling us that when it got dark at night, your pupils got larger. And when the light came out in the daytime, your, your pupils uh, would, excuse me, the opposite. She was saying that your, your, your black part of your eye, your pupils would get larger in the daytime and get more slitty and narrow at night. And I raised my hand because I'm looking right at the book. <laughs> I was looking right at my science book. I raised my hand to my third grade teacher and I said, you're wrong. You know, it's just the opposite. And she would not understand that a third grader would, would, have, would be able to correct her. So we argued at the end of the day and the buses in the parking lot were held up uh, when school was being dismissed because our class was still in. And I finally said, let's go in the coat room with a flashlight. And we went in the coat room with a flashlight. And sure enough, when you th throw a flashlight in somebody's eyes, your pupils get small. And she had to admit she was wrong. Well, that was when I was about eight years old, nine years old. And that kind of continued the rest. And I have other examples through the rest of my life. So, you know, like you say, you don't argue about something unless, like in, in my case, I'm looking right at the book and reading it. I mean, it wasn't like I was guessing or anything. And when you know that you're right and you know that a principle is right, then you really do, I'm, I'm sorry, you have to go to the mat on, on some of these things, and especially if they are life and death. You know, it's one thing to argue about the, you know, the color of the drapes or something like that, things that don't matter. But when it's really a life and death matter, and you know, in the FBI, uh, a lot of things are life and death. In fact, I even taught deadly force, the use of deadly force. That's part of the, 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 the training I had to give. So those things are very, very important. And when you are right about something, you you have to um, you have to you know be prepared to take a risk to perhaps to sacrifice yourself. You know the worst, the probably the most egregious example of that right now is Julian Assange. But on it's, it goes with the territory. And in my case, when you when you're in a in a certain setting whether it's the military, whether it's an agency, your profession, but it also could be your church. It could be any group at all. You know, it's the, it's the tribalism. You're not going to really be able to fully see the truth because it's like a fish in water. Everything that surrounds you is coloring the truth and you're not going to really be able to see it clearly. Somebody who is outside of that Venn diagram is going to be able to see it a lot more uh, clearly. So typically your whistleblowers are not the people in power because those people, you know, as George Carlin said, it's a big club and you aren't in it. So that big club of people who are, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a, you know, a government agency, whether it's the military, uh, oftentimes, you know, people below the rank. So the generals, for instance, are all kind of of the same mind. Whereas maybe a couple, three ranks below that is where someone can actually see the truth of what's going on. And I think in my case, you know, like all new people, I was exactly like you. I joined the FBI because I had been watching as a little kid. I was always uh, excited about the man from uncle and some of these other police shows and, you know, spy shows and that type of thing, just like anybody. And so when you join, you want to, you want to, you know, Im impress the people around you. And so you're going to share their, their, um, their opinions and, and try to impress them. Oftentimes in an agency, 
no one from the top has to tell people below what's wanted or needed. You're going to get a second, uh, a sixth sense of that pretty darn quick because you're going to be trying to get those incentive awards and, and try to get those uh, feathers in your cap so that you can seek promotion. I mean, all, all groups function like this. And um, so it, at some point, though, it, there becomes a time when you say, you know what, this is not right. This is absolutely not right. And, uh, you know, I have to do something about it or I won't be me. You know, whether you can actually accomplish something is a whole nother story. But at, at some point, you, I think you, you risk your own, um, I don't know, the, not the right word is soul, but you risk your own, your, your own self if you go along too far in some of these terrible uh, situations. And, you know, a lot of people do finally see it. Even Robert McNamara, you know, it took him a long, long time. You know, he's at the end of his life when he finally admits, you know, oh my gosh, you know, this was wrong, quote unquote, it was a fog of war, tries to make some excuses. But, it, but for most people, and especially like I say, when you're not in that controlling group, you, you end up seeing it. It's just the question of what are you going to do about it? And in the FBI, I started to see some, some things, you know, long before 9-11, the FBI had those scandals where they were operating top echelon criminals, organized criminals like Whitey Bulger in Boston, but also in the New York office, um, my own supervisor was, was operating a top capo in the Colombo family with all with basically the same types of results as with Whitey Bulger. And everyone knew it, and nobody really did anything about it uh, until later. He, he ended up, uh, they tried to prosecute that my supervisor for operating that guy because he was killing a whole bunch of people. Um, but for a long time, nobody uh, spoke up. And the, the, um, that whole situation where there were no rules in the FBI that, that uh, prohibited cozy relationships with informants and, and or with assets or whatever. And so there were no rules about that. There were, there were sex affairs between uh, agents and their informants, which, you know, think about the, the problems that come from not having any rules about such a thing. And uh, so about 1997, I said, now, what am I going to do about this? Well, I, I wrote a nice suggestion into our suggestion program. <laughs> That's all I could think of to do because we had this suggestion program. And, and it, you know, I kept checking on the suggestion. And in the meantime, the Whitey Bulger thing uh, hit the media. So you would think someone would have said, hey, you know, she's right. We have to have a rule preventing this. And, uh, and yet three years later, my suggestion lapsed, lapsed for inaction. So there's a, there's a good example. And you have to figure out what you can do that's somewhat constructive and that you can, you know, at least, you know, do your best and yet try to have some impact. And uh, it's, not, it's not easy at all. Eventually, I, I think a lot of times the media, if we had a decent objective, investigative media like we're supposed to, uh, a lot of these things would, uh, would be remedied. Um, and unfortunately, over time, our corporate media has just sided more and more with uh, powers, you know, and cover-ups and all this type of thing. We see it over and over. So it's a, it's a sad situation. But I, since retiring, you know, then you're freer to, to write and speak. So I, after I retired, I tried to run for Congress here. 
<clears throat> and in 2006, I was the only uh, congressional candidate who went down to Cindy Sheehan's Camp Casey to ask uh, uh, George Bush, what's the noble cause that we had so many people die in, in Iraq? And so I was like the only, you know, I wasn't really a politician, but I was the only, uh, I, I probably was trying to be a politician, I guess. But uh, it's a, that's that also, that running for, for any elective office is just fraught with all kinds of issues and problems. Uh, I, I don't have too much faith anymore in elections per se. So um, I tried like a whole bunch of things, even after retirement. And uh, I, like I say, up till now, it's been a pretty much a frustrating process to see where we keep sinking lower and lower uh, in, in the world. You know, we don't have the moral authority after no accountability for torture. I see all my old bosses, people like Robert Mueller, uh, Giuliani, actually, when I worked in New York City, he was the U.S. attorney. I see how easily uh, these people just, Louis Free, uh, by the way, a former FBI director uh, who I right. knew pretty well. I mean, you see how easily they got corrupted, really corrupted uh, by different things, revolving door money and stuff. And it, it's a, it's pretty sad. I don't know. You just have to you just have to steal yourself, I think, for um, a, a form of sadness and, and frustration. You know, Colleen, I, at the risk, I, I have two kind of follow-ons that I didn't plan on from some of the things you said, and one of them will risk us going on a tangent, but I can't help myself. Uh, you know, growing up in Staten Island, uh, sort of mob lore and the tangential sort of touch of the mafia uh, was was it was a pretty real thing actually you know in the 1990s and uh, so I was going to ask I don't know if it's public record but who the Colombo Capo was that was being you know kind of uh, ineffectively or, or illegally run. Oh, who was it? Yeah, it was, the, a, it was a guy named Scarpa. Scarpa, SC, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. Yep. And there was a war going on. A lot right. of the with, the, with the Arena faction, right? It was like the Arena faction versus the Persicos, yep. correct? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. exactly. When I was in New York City from 1984 to 1990, and this was this, the period of time where labor racketeering, uh, all four families, not including the Bananos, were divvying up the superstructure jobs all through Manhattan to seven main mob-affiliated construction companies. And then the union, like in the case of the laborers, uh, the, the capo of the Colombo family was also the district council president of the laborers. And so he was a guy who was coordinating the bids along with the cement companies. I mean, it was a massive thing through the 1980s. And we ended up um, legally, legally, I have to emphasize because when, when we wiretapped and planted microphones on social clubs and even vehicles and telephones, we ended up with 100, usually around 100 pages of probable cause in each of those Title III uh, wiretap applications that went to regular district judges who, who uh, you know, signed off on them and said, yes, you have probable cause after working for a year and surveilling and all the rest. And so what a vast difference to go from that era of where you actually did uh, investigations 
legal investigations and, and really pretty successful because all of the hierarchy of the mob back in about 1986, 87, all got convicted. Um, so those were very successful. And then you go to after, after 2001, when nothing, there's no laws anymore. You just wire, you listen in on everything, you vacuum up everybody's information. It's very ineffective almost can't begin then the fbi starts all these mostly entrapments kind of coercing people right. i mean you, you see the vast difference between when we scare people into saying you know if we don't protect you you'll be attacked you know anthrax you know all the things that are used to scare people and then when things are done right and when you actually are coolly calmly proceeding and using you know your critical thinking skills and you have levels legal the rule of law and these legal restrictions on policing were you know very much in place we had attorney general guidelines that the fbi could not even infiltrate any group it was not even we couldn't do it i i was the teacher i mean i was one of the people who would be asked these questions and it was we couldn't do it now, after uh, Ashcroft almost immediately removed most of the restrictions, the AG restrictions don't even exist. So, I mean, it was day and night. And so it's, um, it wasn't hard for people. I just, I just always wonder why there aren't more people from inside government. But I think some of it is because people were hired after 9-11 and they don't even know what it was like beforehand. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting sort of bureaucratic issue where uh, when the rank and file or even the mid-level leaders came into these agencies or the military, in my case, after 9-11, they don't even have a frame of reference for, you know, the right way or the, the old way or the, the pre-Patriot Act way. And I think that that's sort of uh, very interesting. I mean, there's a lot of talk of that within the military, but it usually focuses on the whole oh, we don't know how to fight a big war with Russia thing, which I think misses the broader point, which is that, you know, we don't know how not to be at war. We don't know how not to assume that our lives are going to be just forever expeditionary deployments. And I imagine that within the intelligence community, you saw that with everyone who came in post 9-11, uh, even though you had left soon after, I imagine that you must have maintained some contact and kept the pulse to a certain extent of how the intelligence community has changed. Would that be fairly accurate? Yes. Um, I had was not able to really remain in much contact with anybody still in. But of course, all you have to do is read the papers. And I was in for two plus years. You know, I was lucky, one of the very few people lucky who uh, was, a, you know, was a whistleblower on 9-11 and still was able to keep my job and make it to retirement. Uh, like you, I guess we're both in that situation, you know, really lucky yeah, the, in a way. The lucky ones, yeah. Yeah, and very few people are able to do that. And uh, especially when I spoke out that second time, which was even more disastrous for my career, I really was lucky in that last year. I just had to accept every terrible assignment that nobody would do the last year in order to try to uh, ingratiate myself and make and continue to, to uh, make it to retirement. But the... Um, the, so I did have a couple of years. I didn't exactly know that torture was going on, but Ali Sufan spoke to our office once and, you know, was really close to, to uh, describing what was going on. 
And then there, there were a couple other times where I got a little clue that, you know, what was going on, that they were torturing people. Um, it's in high, some of it came from hindsight more than, than at the time. I didn't really, I'd see people whispering uh, as I walked by. And, and then I, in hindsight, I realized that they were reading these teletypes about uh, torturing uh, Zubaida. I think they probably were reading things like that. And then all of a sudden, when they saw me walking down the hall, they'd lower their voice. So there, was, there were things that I knew before I retired. And I certainly knew that there was, uh, you know, oh, these tips were coming in. They call it the wall. The wall between national security, which is a way around the Fourth Amendment, um, the, the, uh, the law that says we have a right against unreasonable searches and seizures. So that was always strictly followed. But then all of a sudden, the, the, when the wall came down, then we went back to J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, Hoover used all of that national security pretext along with the House Hunt American activities to do all this, what we now think of as illegal uh, wiretapping and investigation, putting microphones in Martin Luther King's hotel rooms, uh, also uh, spying on Einstein. I mean, back in the 1950s before Einstein died, Einstein died with an 1,800-page FBI file, and Hoover considered him the top enemy of the country. He was getting most of the information on Einstein from the Nazis, from Nazi sources. Unbelievable. So all of that, that era that everybody, you know, always thought of as being bad, you know, we'll never go back to doing that. Once you drop the wall between uh, national security and intelligence, and now Mueller and, and uh, all, the, all of his successors have said, that's, our main, that's the FBI's main goal. The main goal is not criminal investigation anymore. It's, it's intelligence gathering and, and foreign policy and, and whatever. So they, made, they went right back to that Hoover era. And uh, that, I knew that was happening. In fact, I was the first person, I, I don't know if I was, was the first, but when I wrote my memo in June of 2002, I wrote this 11 page thing and I got to where I was using the term uh, global war on terrorism or something like that. I think it was the war on terrorism. And when I got to it, something in the back of my head told me to put it in quotes. I was like the first person who was like, I'm a little skeptical about this. And I put the, the war on terror in quotes. And that was, that was way back when it was just first starting, June of 2002. That's so interesting. You know, oh man, we could talk the entire time. I, I, just one last sort of diversion on this. I get, you know, I use the podcast in many ways, as Henry knows, <laughs> to just like work out ideas that eventually become, you know, columns and stuff. And, uh, you know, hearing you talk about some of the organized crime stuff you've done and hearing you talk about the uh, sort of bureaucratic problems when uh, national security became or foreign policy national security became the sort of uh, focus of the FBI uh, somewhat inappropriately, although it had been that before. It struck me, you know, I'm imagining you may have watched The Wire when that HBO show came out, you know, in 2002, which was kind of around the same time that uh, you were going through a lot of this. There's the you know, seen in the first season where the uh, Baltimore police officer, the main character, Jimmy, is talking to his friend who he works with unofficially in the FBI, and they're, they're finishing up this great drug case, you know, this really great, uh, important case, and uh, 
Jimmy asked him, are you going to be doing more cases like this? Are you, you know, are you going to take this further and run it up the pole to the Dominican faction in New York? And he says, well, no, the problem is they're not named Muhammad. So uh, I can't get any funds or energy or my bosses to be interested. And, and I just couldn't help but think of that when you were mentioning the way things changed, the way that the wall came down. Uh, yeah. that, that just really fascinated me. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we always had new directors and new bosses that would come in and they would have new priorities. Um, we called it flavor of the day. And so um, people maybe don't know this, but in August of 2001, Ashcroft made international terrorism his lowest priority. So a month before the 9-11 attacks, terrorism was a low, low priority. He made violent crime his top priority. And the reason was, you know, people, all these bosses, these directors come in with pre-agendas. So his prior agenda was uh, to reinstate the death penalty. He really was big on wanting to get more death penalty prosecutions. And he thought that, um, he thought that uh, making violent crime the top priority would be the mechanism to restore a more you know, invigorated uh, death penalty. So it's, it's amazing. People say, oh, well, there's, he had to do that on purpose. You know, no, no, he just had a prior agenda. Uh, Condi Rice, prior agenda before she comes in is not terrorism, same thing. Her, ter her agenda is to take down the anti-ballistic missile defense and to make Russia, you know, to make it more of the enemy, et cetera. Because why? That was her prior expertise. And, and I'm sure Larry Wilkerson will verify that. Uh, he, he said, you know, I think he's said the same thing. Her prior, th her prior uh, raison d'etre was counting, she, she makes a joke about counting the, the warheads or something like that, uh, the missiles that could fit on a warhead in one of the documentaries. So all of these people with their, with their prior agendas, and then when they do that, the people in under them Again, like I said, we're kind of in these tribalistic Venn diagrams are trying to please the boss. And so these other things, you know, if you're a critical, if you're a critical thinking and or you're 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 far enough away where you you're not affected as much by this trying to ingratiate yourself, et cetera, then you're able to see other things a little more clearer. And uh, you know, again, that's that's the sad thing about all of this situation is that. Uh, people have short memories. They forget who these officials are. Uh, they forget their track record and their past track record. When, when Mueller took on the impeachment, I could not believe how the, the Democrats put him up on a pedestal. I was at one, uh, one speaking thing where they were mostly a Democrat liberal audience, and they just could not fathom that the, any of this Russia gate, you know, the, the holes and the, the any kind of facts that undercut uh, the Russia gate. And I said, well, you know, Mueller, he, he doesn't walk on water. You, you remember what he did? And same thing with Comey. Comey signed off on torture. And, the, and literally, that was only what, 10, 10 years later, 15 years later. And I couldn't find people that even remembered these, these are people's track record. It, it was, it's, it's again, I, I hate to be so <coughs> frustrating about it all, but it, it is, it, it's kind of a sad thing because people have short memories and they want to, I think a lot of his people just don't want to, don't want to know bad things and don't want to, 
they prefer to believe more pleasant, you know, reality oftentimes is not a nice, reality is kind of a, a sad thing. It's got its good and bad, but it, it oftentimes uh, is things that people would prefer not to know. And, it, and so when you do have somebody pointing out these flaws and problems and bad track records and all the rest, it's like people just want to shut their ears. Well, it is very difficult to maintain a long memory when it seems that a society like ours runs from scandal to scandal and from event to event and obscenity to obscenity. Uh, there is, I think, an, an inclination personally among people to sort of hide their heads in the sand or just not want to deal with it and certainly not remember. I was having coffee with a friend yesterday and we were discussing how in some ways, you know, when folks say that they're, you know, apolitical, whether it's on a dating app or just in life or something, you know, that's a that's a privilege in a sense, because, you know, for many folks, politics is their life. I mean, it really does affect all of us in the sense that this is done in our name. But at the same time, you know, there are folks in poorer communities or in browner communities or overseas that, that are victims of sometimes the American military machine or its proxies who, you know, they don't have the privilege of being apolitical. And so as we, we kind of transition to one of the main facets I want to ask you about, it's that in a sense, it feels, and it's always been the case, but it feels like it's really come home amidst COVID uh, with George Floyd, with Minneapolis, right? And uh, not too far, you know, from your neck of the woods, it seemed to me that at least in the public eye, that the phenomenon which has always existed historically and conceptually of empires eventually coming home, of empires eventually sort of eating their young and consuming themselves uh, in the domestic sphere uh, has been laid bare to some extent by police militarization and uh, some of the suppression. And then of course, some of Donald Trump's rhetoric and that of other folks on his end of the aisle, uh, but not just Republicans. Uh, and I was wondering if you had, Henry's got a couple of follow-ons that are a little more specific, but if you had any general thoughts about the uh, what we're seeing in the streets, and of course it's enlivened again with the Breonna Taylor uh, grand jury, and uh, the uh, your own perception of that, not only as an American citizen, a follower of these things, but as someone who worked the straddling the line to some extent between the domestic sphere and intelligence and also sort of the counterterror and foreign sphere. I was wondering if you had just general thoughts on what we're seeing in the streets. Well, when I wrote the uh, memo in Feb late February of 2003 uh, to try to explain all the reasons why Iraq war was not justified and would prove counterproductive, one of the things, you know, that I tried to use my personal experience, so I used the deadly force policy in the FBI, which where, you know, basically it's supposed to be only when you're only supposed to be able to shoot when your life is in danger or an innocent person's life is in danger. And of course, this plays out in a myriad of, of the simulated scenarios that FBI agents practice and, you know, train on, et cetera. However, when I, I use that, because I said that deadly force policy is going to change to align more with what the Bush administration is now doing, which is a preventative. So, you know, this whole idea that you're going to stop the threat, that that was put in, it, 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 in my opinion, it's very similar to uh, what was the Nuremberg principle that, you know, uh, that you, the greatest supreme crime 
is a war of aggression. So if, you, if you're trying to sell something by saying you're stopping the threat before it's a threat, Okay, because why? Because you're so omniscient that you know all over what's going to be a threat. Well, the law can't go there because all chaos breaks loose. And that chaos that broke loose with the Iraq war justified in a preventative way, uh, and, and most of our wars since then have been the same way, that I think has morphed completely back, where now, instead of uh, confronting a threat to your own life, uh, where you have actual tangible facts, like a person is, you know, shooting at you, uh, or whatever, or, or shooting at another person. Um, now it's like the the, the the idea is that you can shoot ahead of time. And I think that you know when I wrote that, that was just one little paragraph or so in my memo, and it was the thing that was most attacked internally by other FBI. Oh, Colleen, are you crazy? That would never happen. I, that's what I was. I had people that said, "What? In the, where in the heck did you get that notion?" You know. And of course, not only with uh, the greater willingness to engage in uh, shooting, shooting itself, but it's not just the police. It's also the average citizen, um, because now uh, you know. If you look at police shootings, it's not only some of the more rogue uh, types who are who have never been held accountable, even for beatings and other things. It's not just that. And, and it's not just racism either. There's also the notion with the, the two prior shootings in Minnesota were Hispanic Yanez police officer Yanez shooting uh, Fernanda, um, Fernandez. Okay, that was one. And the other one was a Somalian, black Somalian police officer shooting a white Australian woman. So the reason for those is that the police are really scared and they're scared because the population is armed. In the 1980s and even 90s, the police chiefs, uh, their, their groups would warn about these loosening of, uh, of gun laws. And they would warn that now the police are going to become more, you know, quicker to shoot because they're scared. And so we have now, we've ginned this up and now the other thing is we have, like I said, the, the, the old deadly force policy, I think I was right in my memo, but besides that, the, um, the, the average citizen, so for instance, the mass shooters, and it's been well documented now that, you know, it's not just PTSD, but the whole notion of war zone, the war zone that veterans were in is, is, comes back. So whether they're police officers, some are police officers, but some are just become mass shooters. And so we had these <clears throat> much higher proportion of mass shooters that are veterans in the population. All of these things, there's, there's, these are just a couple of the things where the, the war has come back. And on top of that, corruption as well. You know, all these empires, when they are seeking to gain uh, control over foreign lands, then internally they rot from the inside. So you see that, of course, with revolving door and all. I mean, I don't even, people have, have almost blinded themselves to the corruption, but huge corruption uh, in, our, in our government on so many levels that they almost have to close their eyes to, to a lot of it. Uh, you know, the guy that invested in, uh, he got the warnings about coronavirus and, and he invested, what had happened? He 
he took his investments out of the Wall Street. But I mean, that's common. This this notion of using your power and in, in these positions now to benefit yourself, and so the corruption and then the the level of violence that that has you know occurred in foreign lands that people were pretty desensitized to now has just come back. I kind of disagree <clears throat> that most people understand that. I don't think Americans, I say it, but you know, David Swanson and his writing about the mass shooters, but I don't think people understand that there are costs of war. I honestly think that most of them think, okay, we're killing some foreigners. They don't even think they're killing the vast numbers, the millions that are being killed. They don't see where these these costs have come back to hurt us and how the, the war that we're doing abroad does have costs and that it has come home. I don't think most people do understand that because I think if they did understand that, things would change. Um, but I think that they compartmentalize. They're able to put, oh, that's foreign policy. And then boom, uh, you know, the, the wall goes up. Well, that's foreign policy. Don't confuse me with domestic policy. And I think that that's maybe the job. Maybe that'll be some of the task of trying to explain the cost of militarism to Americans, whereby they don't think that, okay, if we're threatened with losing social security, for instance, uh, that it, well, our foreign policy has no, 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 there's no connection between uh, the money, the, the trillion dollars going to the Pentagon every year and us losing uh, our social security, us or, or us losing our infrastructure, roads, you know, all of the things that, that are less and less funded. Most people, I'm, I'm afraid, do not see that. And this is where the Pentagon and the military industrial complex have been very successful in making the costs of war invisible. I think they learned the lessons from Vietnam. And I think in a lot of different ways, they constructed perpetual war so that Americans would not really recognize the cost. And we're practically in a war zone now. And certainly after the election, I mean, people are worried to death about what could happen because people are, aren't. So many people are mad and they think, you know, the answer is war. They, they think, you know why? Our leaders have been telling us for 20 years the answer is war. So why shouldn't uh, a white supremacist who thinks he's being cheated out of something or other think, quote unquote, the answer is for me to get my gun and, and shoot somebody. And the same with the mass shooters. The same with the mass shooters. They get they get insulted or they they uh, get mad about something. Uh, even things like I can't get a date. <laughs> you know, they're mad about things like that. And their answer is, okay, well, I'll just go shoot some people. They the every time there's been a mass shooting, our news says we can, we're trying to figure out the motive. I'm telling you, there's no real motive. Motive kind of means uh, something like most people think it's something that is rational, like you tried to kill your wife for the insurance money or something like that, that there's actually a rational motive. The mass shootings are not really rational. They're just people who got mad right, for something or other and then uh, ridiculously decided that shooting more people would be the answer to their problems, to their personal problems. And I think that's what we're in now in the United States. I. I mean, that sounds a little radical, but I think that is the situation we are living in right now. Uh, even road rage, road rage went up, homicides and suicides. Um, and just one more thing to, to, to strengthen my argument about this is that I used to uh, tell people when I was arguing against war, 
I was trying to tell audiences that there were costs and, you know, most people didn't see the cost too much. And I was trying to, I said, well, one thing is terrorism itself, domestic terrorism tends to go up with war. You saw v during the Vietnam War, there was, uh, there was shootings and there were, there were, uh, well, bombings even, you know, the uh, different things that happened with the uh, weathermen and different things like that. And when um, I said the last three, the last three kind of major American terrorists, now these were talks way back in 2004, so these were early on. The main three were Timothy McVeigh, uh, John Mohammed the Sniper, and then there was another guy who shot up a, a nurse, nurses uh, in some teaching facility out in Arizona, I shot a bunch of nurses. All three were Gulf War I vets, all three of these major uh, domestic terrorists in the United States were all Gulf War I vets. And I would say that, and there would be like a hush over the audience. <laughs> you know, I said, well, that's, you know, this is, it kind of goes with it. And it was like, nobody could fathom it. And I think some of it is they just got this compartmentalization going on in their heads. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone, who you like, might think might be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. Conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities and inflicts on minorities around the globe and anyone else you think it might affect please take a moment pause the episode share this with them now our podcast is supported in a few different ways First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So, let's bring out these honorary producers. And they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's so important that you bring up the domestic terrorism and, of course, the misunderstanding that, you know, terrorism is linked just to non-state actors, just to uh, overseas and particularly Muslim actors, uh, when in fact, as you note, I mean, much of terrorism, even still, is domestic, is often white, and is, in other cases, is state-directed terrorism. And then, so Henry, yeah, you want you had some really interesting stuff that you want to talk about regarding the federal. That I think is like perfect to bring. Yeah. Um, so I, I I apologize, Colleen. Before we began, I didn't give you any little little bit of background on me. Um, I'm a former Army MP. I was in for six years, and I worked uh, for CID for two years as a drug investigator during that time. And then I was a reserve police officer when I got out, so I, I have I have a little a little bit of experience in some of these things. Um, in in examining what happened with uh, Breonna Taylor, it got me to thinking about how law enforcement in general, and in the military to a certain extent, but in terms of uh, what actually happens on the domestic front, is a you know that violent responses are acceptable that if if you know it yes it requires cops to do some more paperwork and other things like that but there is there's never been an incentive for law enforcement to act in a nonviolent way to attempt to deal with offenders in a more nonviolent way um which there was something that you mentioned in one of your letters to Robert Robert Mueller about the Waco raid that you know violence is something that the feds that the military the cops of whatever jurisdiction can inject into a situation, but that doing so will generally make things worse, again, bore out by what happened in Waco, along with what you've been talking about, the, the Bush administration response to 9-11 and Iraq and Afghanistan, to only mention a few. Um, and for our current day, um, there's a lot of data that is talking about how very violent police responses to things, the murders of of people um, that um, it's actually being that the protesting is being driven by police violence. But most police officers aren't aren't keen to to be able to see it that way, despite the data. Um, the ones that I'm thinking about right now um, that the the suspect in the murder of Vanessa Guillen at uh, at Fort Hood that. He was able to escape from his unit custody where they had him confined there at, at his barracks because CID chose to do a controlled phone call in pursuit of a confession with him. And it scared him. He ran. He pulled a gun on the local cops that found him and he killed himself. Um, Brianna Taylor dying in her apartment as a casualty of a search warrant, even though she wasn't the person they were after, um, and that the grand jury it didn't indict anyone for her death, but they did indict an officer for shooting in the next apartment, which somehow met the the, the right markers. I'm not sure about that one. Um, the the thing that I'm after here is that it, in in your mind, how do we come into it preaching nonviolent responses for law enforcement? And this is it's somewhat separate from you know police abolition or defunding the police, but that. We know that police violence, state violence, is its own means to an end. How do we change that? Yeah, absolutely. Martin Luther King uh, 
great quote about violence begets violence, you know, and, and others have said the same thing. Uh, you're not really helping anything. I think the problem, uh, maybe one of the root causes of some of this, these overreactions is the machoism itself. Certainly Waco, uh, part of it is it, it, after a month of waiting out, uh, whatever his name was now, I forget his name, the head of Waco, it, it started to look in the press like the FBI was weak. You're waiting it out. Why don't you just go in and get him? And so then they came up with this thing about storming the, the compound. Now, after it, it backfires and, and then the children are killed and stuff, then there's a reckoning. Uh, there's a reckoning that this was not the right approach and that using more patients, even though you maybe some journalists were, were calling you weak or something, or you, did, you looked like you were afraid, but that machoism was at play in the Waco fiasco. And then afterwards, they did wait out some other standoffs of, of different, I think some other, you know, anti, what are they called? White supremacy groups out, uh, forget their names, but these groups that were anti-government out at, out West and they worked, they didn't kill anyone. They were able to, to resolve it successfully. Hostage negotiators are able to, uh, in standoffs, they're the ones usually with the cooler heads. And by the way, at Waco, the hostage negotiators were basically, they were arguing, don't do this. And, and the behavioral people were saying, don't do this, don't do this. But they were just out shouted by the SWAT guys. And so this, is, this was basically a, a, a tug of war between the SWAT guys who, by the way, this is wannabe militarism. You know, we're SWAT guys. We're not going to have anybody saying we're weak waiting for a month. So if you look at Waco itself, and then you can look at all these other situations, Brianna Taylor, the re I don't hear this nearly enough, so I'm going to bring it up. I taught the last couple years of my uh, career in teaching um, the constitutional law, no-knock warrants were really starting with the drug war. So in, in about maybe late 1990s, uh, and, and into the two th early 2000s, the drug war was causing police to think they had to execute so-called no-knock warrants. And there were legal, legal cases coming down. In fact, in one uh, decision actually said, if you were not justified in doing the no-knock warrant, you would lose the evidence. And I think that later got overturned. So there were, there were reasons for me to be teaching and basically, you, you know, telling the agents to use caution. They were executing a lot of search warrants with local police. And what they would do, the SWAT team, by the way, it would be the, usually the SWAT team, they would throw a flashbang grenade. So they were called flashbangs. And you would go to the doorway and throw this little flashbang grenade or whatever it was. And then you would try to rush in real quick. And, and you were not, not, you were dispensing with knock and announce. So the law was developing that you actually had to put that into your warrant, that you couldn't just use your own to say, oh, well, we just decided to do this. And I was in the, the law, the federal law was not going to announce. And I was telling people they had announced their identity and their, and their purpose and their, and their um, wait a few seconds. They had to wait a few seconds after they knocked and announced. That became a big issue in the last couple of years that I was teaching. And with the with uh, Brianna Taylor, that to me is the issue. Uh, the people that are protesting 
uh, different police actions, along with, of course, uh, chokeholds and things like that. That's one of the things they should really be asking for. They should be asking for a lot more scrutiny on uh, no-knock warrants. And in fact, I, I think you can argue that they're not justified almost across the board. They used to say that they were um, they would be more safety, that it would help officer safety. And I think that's not true at all. I don't think they can justify that it increases officer safety to execute a no-knock. Um, they say, well, the, they might destroy evidence inside. Well, maybe that's that maybe is a little stronger argument. But I think that's the area. And, and again, the point here is that this machoism is a military wannabe uh, mindset that always existed, for instance, in the FBI. When I went to the FBI Academy, it was set along military. They, they tried to emulate like being in a military academy. I mean, it's, a lot of it was probably uh, a little bit, what's the word, you know, false. You know, it wasn't all that. They, they make it up to be more militaristic than it actually was. We had to wear kind of like little uniforms and stuff, you know, whatever. They make it that way, but there was a reason for that. They were trying to make it more like we want to be, you know, we're like, you know, soldiers or something like that. And that was always the wrong. Going back to what the right approach to law enforcement is, and I, I, I know this sounds real silly, but that old Andy Griffith and Barney Fife show, if you watch a few of those episodes, uh, you know, of course, it's a, it's trying to make you laugh, but there's a lot of truth in that show. The Barney Fife is the guy who panics, and you know, Andy is always smart enough to hardly ever give him his bullet, <laughs> because when he does give him his bullet, he ends up shooting, you know, down in the floor, or the, the ceiling, and and uh, and messing up. He constantly messes up because he, he panics and overreacts. And the cool, calm, collected, smart decent human being andy griffith community he was basically the model for community policing in mayberry now i know it's a it's a silly sitcom but that should be the model and for a long time community policing was always touted the chiefs chiefs of police the sheriff's association uh they even at a certain point federally were able to overcome the racial um, you know, what it was it called? Stop being stopped by while black, you know, there was a reason for it. Oh, gosh, what's the name of that? Well, the, it was a racial policy whereby police were allowed more leniency in stopping uh, black drivers. And they didn't even, you know, they, they never, until a law professor said, hey, you're not even getting the drugs this way uh, by this kind of racial. So that was even overcome. That was overcome in, in about 2001. The feds put out a policy that you, you couldn't uh, uh, discriminate that way. So there were things that with the community policing that were, were fine for a while. They could have been a lot more amplified and they could have been a lot more taught and whatever than they were. But unfortunately, I think this was all set back. That whole time where there was a little bit of this was set back after 9-11. Just in the FBI, for instance, the FBI used to hire what they called diverse, uh, people with diverse backgrounds. 
So there were there was a woman who was a mortician before she became an FBI. There was a guy I knew he was a dentist. Certainly there were some historians. I worked with our profiler who was a histor who was a history major. So they were trying to hire people with all kinds of diverse backgrounds in the hopes that this would kind of balance out and people would have different perspectives, et cetera. Well, after 9-11, I think they became much more of a sole focus on hiring people with military backgrounds. I saw in the last year, almost every new new agent that would uh, come in uh, to our office, a new agent would be a former captain, a former uh, military officer, and especially intelligence, military intelligence. So they gravitated and that was just one little thing where this whole sea change, once we're in perpetual war, it can't be contained and it can't be compartmentalized. It spreads. And, in that, and this is one of the ways it morphed back and definitely affected. We always talk about the, the equipment, you know, the tanks and things like that that were given out to sheriff's offices and stuff. And, you know, they could drive around in their tank and look like they were playing military and stuff. So, and, which is true, some of that. But that's just one, one of many, many aspects of how uh, policing became more and more militarized and just the mindset itself that we're in a war. I worked in the war on drugs, the so-called war on drugs. And of course we had the war on poverty. So I never believed that when you were calling it war, I always thought, well, that just means you work hard. You know, the war on poverty means you work harder to end poverty. The war on drugs meant you worked harder to, to stop drug trafficking. That's all I thought it meant until we got to this point where it really was taking the same tactics that are used in, in war zones and then saying we can use them, you know, locally, domestically here. And that's, you know, that's the, the sad truth. And uh, so there's a lot of room for reform uh, and there's a lot of, of really good ideas. It's just political will. And so if, if people would start paying attention to some of these, some of them are policing experts and they've written all kinds of things that would really make a difference and would improve policing so that you're protecting the public as opposed to, you know, the many people in the public are afraid to call the police, especially if they have a, a son or a daughter who are is mentally ill and, you know, could have, they could have an old family member who's threatening them. Uh, you know what? Uh, police, the, the mother or whatever, she's going to be afraid to call the police. I, I saw this, you know, we just, this was a, several months ago, a mother was being threatened by her 16, 17 year old son. She called the police and the police came and shot him dead. So like, she's like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have called the police. And so this is, this is happening. Men, mental illness, by the way, is a, is something that the FBI, the, the uh, policing needs a lot more training on. Because again, you go right to the thing as well. Okay, he's got a weapon of some sort, or I spotted a weapon. I I'm entitled to shoot the person. So this is this is there's a lot lot of good, 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 um, very substantiated suggestions for police reform. I don't hear about a lot of them. I see them written in more academic papers and whatever. But I'm not hearing, of course, our corporate media. Our corporate media likes to dumb it down. They like to make it kind of a good versus evil. They like to make something simple. And there, there, there are some really good reforms that should be implemented, right? One of which is knocking it out. So they really need to scrutinize that.
have been in in discussing some of this stuff with uh, with some of my friends. I I keep making the point that when officers might announce for doing a, a knock warrant, that who who actually measures what the people inside the place heard? You know, is, is that is is that actually a, a function of officers, you know, it's like, wow, there's a bunch of construction noise. We're not going to hear these people. And that goes right into the anti-intellectualism you're, you're talking about. And, and veterans these days, probably more so than ever, um, are, are very ignorant and they think that they know more than, more than they do. And there's a sense of, um, I've been to war. I know what this is really like. Nobody gets to tell me shit about whatever topic it happens to be. Yep, I think so. And I think the Brianna Taylor case is a prime example of the people inside could not hear it. And, you know, you might hear a little noise on the outside. And in some cases, the, the police only waited seconds instead mm -hmm. of like trying again to knock and announce in, in a louder voice. You know, so they, they were basically planning for um, for breaking a door down. You know, they have a battering ram and everything else, you know, a lot of times. So. I mean, this is this is an area. You, you have you heard anybody really talking much about this on your national news? Hardly, hardly at all. And I think that's one of the you know again, it's concrete. It's something that actually is fairly simple to change. Some jurisdictions, uh, and again, the the courts were already doing this because the courts were seeing a lot of cases where. Poor innocent people were getting shot inside. Uh, Brianna Taylor is not the first person. Oh, you know, no. this is oh, no, no, this no. is resulting in a lot of problems, and some of them went to court. One of the other things, besides criminal accountability for uh, really truly wrongful rogue officer, which never you're absolutely right. Um, there's a great book I'll just quickly mention. Uh, he was a former police Minneapolis police trainer, Michael Quinn, Q U I N N, the author. He wrote a book. Uh, what bad cops do and good cops won't tell you. The title was Walking with the Devil, What Bad Cops Do and Good Cops Won't Tell You. And it's an excellent book, excellent. So on policing, I would encourage everyone to read this book on that my best ethical book I've ever read, I've ever uh, seen. And he uses all true story examples. Um, and so, the, the, the rogues who got away with these things for years and years. And then, of course, people see that and they say, well, OK, I'd rather uh, be judged by by 12 than buried by, you know, six or something. That was always a little thing that was said. And so when there's no criminal accountability, the other thing is civil liability, civil liability. I think I've always thought this in my head should have been made more direct on, on the individual officers. This would not be popular with unions. But because the civil liability would only mean that the city or the taxpayers were bailing out the department. And, you know, we had people that, uh, this was all the way back in, uh, oh, 25 years ago, they were just beating people up all the time, uh, police officers. And one time they beat up a a hockey, and this was in Minneapolis, he beat up a hockey, um, St. Thomas College student, hockey player, <clears throat> and he won a million dollars. So the 
he got beat up and he went, he sued and he won a million dollars. It came out of the city of Minneapolis pockets. Now, what does that do for an officer? It doesn't really do anything. He, that the officer went on to be promoted and, and never had any trouble, you know, never had faced anything. So this is, there are lots of mechanisms that are very common sense that could easily be tweaked and changed and you would automatically get better, uh, better and more. Uh, you're never going to get perfect, as you well know. Uh, we're all humans. And I do think you have to let in some leniency because the job of policing is like walking with the devil. It is hard as heck. And it's especially hard in a situation where the public now is armed. Lots and lots of members of the public are armed. And, and we have, uh, like you say, the, the white supremacists and the, and the, the anti-government um, and the, you know, there are people that on both sides and the guy who shot up the, the, uh, the softball team, for instance, the, the Bernie Sanders supporter who shot up the, the Republican uh, congressperson's softball team. It's, it's across the board. But from a police standpoint, trying to do something in the midst of this is hard. And, it, and you're never going to be able to do it perfectly right. I do think police need some some leniency on some of this. However, on the other hand, there are a whole bunch of good police reforms that have up till now just been ignored. And they've been ignored because there's not been enough political will. I, uh, I live in the Portland, Oregon area. And something that the people living here have been trying to deal with, trying to understand, but mostly it's just scared the shit out of them, was the the deployment of DHS agents um, earlier in the summer. And I'm curious a, a bit about your overall thoughts on DHS as an agency. Um, but more than that, I, I would... I'd like to know your experience with this kind of thing that when, when cops are sent other places and it isn't an obvious thing, they're not going to deal with a big crime scene or, you know, that it's, they can just be kind of floaters. Um, what do you, how do you think people should respond to that to respond? How, how messed up it is in terms of people's rights and understanding who's arresting you or talking to you, all that stuff. Just as a uh, coincidence thing, when I testified to the Senate Judiciary on J June, uh, I think it was June 6th or 7th of 2002, and, you know, I, Bush apparently had decided prior to that that he was going to form the Department of Homeland Security out of 23 other agencies, basically fuse them together so that he could say he was doing something. You know, it was kind of like shuffling the the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic because it didn't really do anything, but, but sure. he fused these agencies together. So apparently that maybe a decision had already occurred. But the, the afternoon that I was to testify in, in, and probably in order to take the headline off of, you know, this FBI agent says that 9-11 could have been prevented. Uh, there, it was uh, Bush broke in that afternoon and said there will be a special announcement. And then a couple hours later, he announced he was forming Homeland Security. And there were quite a number of, of other writers that said, oh, look what, what the Bush administration did. They took Pauline Raleigh off the headlines there to, to, 
to announce this. So <laughs> that's just background. Um, I think that what you kind of alluded to is that sending people into a, a different area, inherently it's the same problem with hiring police from outside of a, juris a city jurisdiction. It already is going in the opposite direction of community policing because now they're coming into what, you know, this is not where we live. We don't care as much about that area. Uh, one uh, great idea for police reform is that police should be hired from the area that they're working in and not, for instance, working in an inner city, but living in a suburb. Well, you can magnify that even more with Department of Homeland Security, sending in people from outside of its jurisdiction. On top of that, the Department of Home, the people that were coming to do this policing were, were people like Customs and, and ICE and, and uh, these, this group actually tend to work on borders where they're not focusing on American citizens, they were focusing on migrants. And so already they're in a mindset of that these are quote unquote foreign people. And so that's just because of, of where they're working. And so, you know, thinking that, oh, now the protesters are like the migrants trying to come across the border. So a lot of those agencies that they were sending were, were of that mind. So, yes, um, I, I think that if you get into a real riot situation where arson and Molotov cocktails, frankly, I mean, when we're in that situation now, this is we're way past we are way past where somebody should have done something that we shouldn't have gotten into this situation. We shouldn't be in a situation where we're practically on the verge of seeing riots and people using arson and, and Molotov cocktails and all the rest. We had to back that up a long ways before this and, and uh, say, you know, peaceful protest should be allowed. You, you can't use violence. One of the ways that this got blurred together was also after 9-11, and I saw this firsthand because Minnesota passed something called the Minnesota Patriot Act. It was a, it was a police officer who was a, a senator in our Minnesota legislator who got it passed, and he called it the Minnesota Patriot Act. Guess what it did? It made terrorism not into just mere threats of hurting or, um, or killing, of course, uh, or, or, or harming a threat to human life, but it blurred it together with property damage. So in Minnesota, this law with as little as $1,000 of property damage, which could have been mere graffiti. So you could have gone up to a building with a spray can and done $1,000 worth of damage. And under this Minnesota law, this again, the post 9-11, people not thinking, you would have been labeled a terrorist. And this actually, they tried to prosecute one group of kids for things like property damage that occurred in the Republican, in the lead up to the Republican National Convention here. And even the prosecutor eventually dismissed the charges under this really egregious Minnesota Patriot Act. Okay, it's an example of when you're blurred together, uh, things like property damage, there should be a clear line between property damage and uh, some things like graffiti and all the rest and actually hurting people. Fires are kind of uh, problematic because there's, you know, most fires, unless it's in a dump or something where it's contained, they can be dangerous. So anytime you set a fire, uh, that's actually a danger to human life. So it's kind of a, something that's a little bit problematic. 
but oftentimes you can see things as clear property damage that should not be treated at the same level as uh, as anyone who is shooting or doing or arson or other things like that, which would be a threat to human life. Again, I, I will just say, I don't want to go on here lecturing because the problem is I don't hear any of this on the news. I don't hear any of these real issues being uh, ferreted out. Maybe some professors are. I hope they are. And I hope they get the ear of some of the politicians. But I don't hear it being discussed in a public, sane, uh, in an educated way. I hear this kind of dumbing down of the whole thing, you know, basically kind of turning it into war. Oh, the protesters versus the police. And that is, is the wrong way to approach this. You know, we should have our, our First Amendment rights. Uh, we should be able to exercise these peacefully. How the heck we got into, you know, the situation where we're in now, and maybe, by the way, may face even in an even worse way down the road. I hope not, but, you know, there's a lot of people that are very afraid we could. Uh, and it's it's been little by little. It's been over these last, you know, couple of decades that these things have eroded. And, and I think we have to go back to the root causes, right, you know, back way up to how this, all these things started. Well, Colleen, I'm really glad that you brought up the media environment and these messages because, you know, one of the things that's most interesting about this conversation, and I think we could, we could go on for, we could do a series with you, Colleen, because seriously, I have a thousand follow-on questions. And I think that the, you know, the best way we're going to talk about some of these things is to do our best to get them into the more mainstream conversation. That's going to be a challenge. Uh, what you bring to the this conversation, this podcast, and pretty much everything that I've ever read or seen you do is this holistic approach that you're talking about, this sort of sophisticated 360 analysis of how there is no abroad and domestic, that it's very much interlinked. And I think partly it's because you worked at the nexus of that and partly because you've just taken so much time to, to educate yourself over the years. Uh, but what is difficult, I think, uh, and, and what I kind of want to end the pod with today is breaking into the narrative. Uh, you know, when six corporations control 90% of American media, when the same talking heads are, you know, from the military or from the intelligence community who probably should have been discredited 20 years ago, or at least 15 years ago surrounding the Iraq war, uh, you know, they still dominate the airwaves with their same sort of interventionist forever war, forever war at home and abroad message. Uh, not touching on much of what we're discussing. And so that brings me to, you know, this Eisenhower Media Network, this EMN project, which is, uh, which is very much real. Uh, we're, we are going to be launching after the election, uh, maybe around Veterans Day, uh, which I think would be great. We have to, of course, see what happens with this election and everything. But uh, I'm going to just read a couple of things from, you know, our draft op plan that I haven't really ever read before on the air anywhere. And then just kind of ask you for, a, you know, as we close out, just a general take on uh, why you wanted to sign on as a senior fellow and kind of honor us with that presence and, uh, and what you hope that we can accomplish. One of the things that motivated this project was exactly what you brought up, that uh, there are folks like us, you know, there's dozens, I mean, at the very least, who are trying to spread these messages. And, uh, and yet there does seem with the, you know, 
with the exception of an occasional op-ed that breaks into uh, the LA Times or once in a while the New York Times, most of us stay uh, just kind of one threshold below. And there's a, a degree of a, of a silencing in much of the mainstream and therefore it doesn't you know, touch uh, the public in the same way. So when we started talking about this project, uh, Ben Cohen and I at a brunch in New York City three years ago when I was still in the army, uh, we discussed this. How, how do we focus or at least link together in some vague way these incredible voices that are providing independent critical messages about American foreign and domestic policy? How do we get them working in the same direction and hopefully get them you know, into the mainstream media? And so we talk about in our plan, you know, our, our, our draft plan, that our objective is to establish an organization of and that is driven by expert retired military intelligence and civilian national security officials hoping then to place them in increasingly mainstream tv radio digital print media and i think that the main thing that is uh, important about what emn is trying to do or what i think it is is this one key fact which is that presently there really isn't any comparable organization uh, of like-minded, independent, and critical veterans, that being the key word, and it's not just military veterans, but national security veterans in general, kind of honing and focusing the existing energy and talent uh, from a pretty passionate and diverse community. Uh, the idea being that our product, to the extent that it exists, is our senior fellows. It's the voices. It's the, uh, the willingness to critique the, the systemic problems that we've been raising on this pod. So uh, I was just hoping that you can give us a, just a, a quick kind of closing on, you know, EMN, your interest and, and, and what you hope to contribute and what you think we could maybe accomplish as we move forward. Well, one of the things that I was, you know, which made me enthusiastic about this group is not only the stature and the uh, credibility and, um, uh, credentials of the group itself, of the different individuals, but the fact that um, I see this as fully nonpartisan, bipartisan, uh, because this corporate media, like you say, these six, you know, they have served now through their, whatever you want to call it, I'll call it fake news, but, you know, they have, in a way, faked polarization, so they've got 95% of all Republicans watching Fox and 5% of independents or something that are watching. 95% are going to Fox to hear what, to confirm what they already think or believe. Same thing with MSNBC. 95% Democrats are going to MSNBC to have Rachel Maddow tell, tell us that we have to go to war on Russia. So you're, you, I see this as a, as a bringing together, uniting on the issues. So the issues, the, the, the corporate media has so polarized America that when you do have somebody, even like yourself or whatever, and you're trying just to say something factual, you will immediately have both sides you know, taking issue with you, both sides, because they're so polarized, they, they can't even see the truth. And so I, I, I'm enthused because I'm hoping that by hopefully getting into some more media and getting more public uh, education going, that perhaps people will see that, that actually both sides have a lot of consensus. We don't want to have the police come and, and shoot up our house. Nobody wants that. We don't want the, to face going out to 
uh, socialize at night and, and have people shooting shots into bars and whatever. We don't ha want that either. We don't want necessarily automatic weapons, uh, everybody carrying AK-47s and stuff. There is, there's a huge consensus amongst people. Now, we don't know that there's this consensus because we've all been, this is how the corporate media and, and the political establishment has controlled us. They have polarized us and, and dangerously so. They have really dangerously polarized us. So I've been very happy. Eisenhower was a Republican warned about the military industrial complex. I'm really happy to talk on issues instead of as on this branding or whatever you political identity branding that mostly is fake in my opinion a lot of it is fake uh i, I voted up until 2000 um including for bush i actually i just to, to disclose my terrible voting record here <laughs> terrible voting record i voted for bush because he was promising at the time you know non-intervention whatever so i voted mostly law and order type republican up until 2000. Then, uh, of course, I did not vote for uh, Bush the second election. Then we get to Obama and I thought, okay, he's promising difference or whatever. And I took that chance. I wasn't real excited, but I voted for Obama in 2008, only to be terribly disappointed, did not vote for his reelection. And so then I voted, at, and, and I haven't voted, to be honest, in the last two elections for a major a, um, uh, a major party because both parties now are so fully engaged in this militarism and I don't really see a significant difference between the two I know that's probably that makes there you go polarization that makes both sides mad and so I see this as a group that can speak on issues and in principles and you know even ethics as opposed to this ridiculous political polarization that is really obfuscating most of the, like I said, even with the police shootings, it's one of the reasons why we're not talking about uh, good reforms and possible reforms and the real issues. We're talking on on political, you know, points about it, which is is completely wrong. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and that's that's a great place for us to kind of uh, wrap this because I think one of the things people people are going to notice about EMN is that, uh, you know, we don't belong to the Biden campaign. We don't belong to the Trump campaign. We don't belong to whatever comes next. And we have already in our initial, you know, 12 apostles, right? Uh, we have folks who, if they can even be pinned down in a political sense, which is difficult because most of these folks are nonpartisan purposely, uh, there's a lot of Republicans. There's a lot of libertarians. I mean, I think that if we went through, you know, I'd have to really look at the data and looked at our first 12, uh, at least half of them spent most of their life voting as Republicans. So the idea is here, hey, look, we've got progressives, we've got libertarians, but what we really have is experts ready to talk about issues who really do put the country first as they see it, who really do focus on the intellectualism, the ethics, and the strategy beyond this, you know, like you said, this fabricated and synthetic two-party duopoly narrative, we're, we're going to try to break outside of that a bit by talking about the issues and not aligning ourselves with any one thing. So while we're not talking about having a message and an editorial control, our discipline is our fellows. And trust in them and and you're just one super great example of that uh how we you know we don't 
belong to the two-party structure we belong, if anything, to a broader consensus that you mentioned doesn't get mentioned, which is that most polled citizens uh, are tired of a lot of these things. They just haven't heard it articulated in quite the same way. Uh, the message that's outside of that doesn't get there. And just one last point on it. I mean, I talk about this all the time. You've heard me say it probably, Colleen, like there is this budding and natural. So even just on the anti-war side, anti-war alliance between, you know, vaguely libertarian Republicans and vaguely progressive Democrats or whatever you want to call them. That's just always been there. Uh, I wouldn't say it's been working at cross purposes, but it's been sort of divided and cleaved, I would argue, at least partially purposefully by so much of this kind of corporate mainstream media to keep us apart, to make us focus on these other polarizing issues that sort of veil the fact that there has always been more commonality between some of these same groups. And we don't have to hate each other, uh, but we can speak to something bigger, something that frankly is a little bit of a grander systemic critique. And so anytime I talk about EMN, uh, I'm, I'm certainly going to, the word systemic is going to be my buzzword, but the idea that we look at the bigger structures and not at individual candidates. And uh, with that being said, uh, what you bring to the table in terms of your expertise and just how strong you are uh, on your feet and ability to talk about a range of issues is just absolutely why um, I, I invited you on uh, to this pod, to EMN, and I just feel like we have so much more uh, that we're going to be able to do together. And I just want to thank you for that and for the pod and, and just everything, because I just feel like this relationship is only going to go further. Well, well, thanks again and looking forward. Great. Well, thanks again. And uh, listeners, uh, we are going to have some more of the EMN fellows on uh coming on. Maybe we'll even bring back Larry or some of the other uh, folks that have uh, been on the pod before, but we're going to kind of do a, uh, uh, a run through. Colleen is only our first uh, run through of the EMN fellows uh, spreading this message and uh, keep an eye out because we're coming and we're, uh, we're definitely coming strong, nonpartisan and independent and uh, definitely systemic. So uh, thanks for listening and we will catch you guys with the next interview next week. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget we'll see you next time and listen to my song i hope you'll pay attention i will not